God gives us his word for our good. It is more than a human word. It is the word of God. Before we read this passage this morning and consider it, let us ask for God to send his blessing on it. Father, we pray that you would soften hearts, that you would open minds, and that you would awaken souls for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Luke 20, God's holy word. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies. Verse 20, by the way, sorry. Verse 20 of Luke 20. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. I began working on this sermon with every intention of taking this whole passage, and I realized that I just wasn't going to be able to do it. So we're really going to focus on the first half of what Jesus says this week, render unto Caesar or give to Caesar. Next week, we're going to unpack in a more complete way uh, what he means when he says, give to God what is God's. Closely intertwined, we'll have to understand them uh, together, obviously. We'll do our best to do that. Uh, But today... Will, uh, will fall short of getting all of the passage. So just be aware of that, and we'll have uh, part two next week. Wanted to get you guys out before uh, lunchtime today. So. Three weeks after the German surrender of World War I in northern France, then-President of the United States Woodrow Wilson set out to Europe to negotiate and to broker peace. He set out with an agenda, and this agenda would become known as the 14 points. There are various things in, that, in, in there, generalities, and then certainly more specific ones that dealt even naming certain nations and what they should do or what they should receive. But some of the general ones are things we hear today in, in politics and around the world. He was advocating for open diplomacy, freedom of the seas, removal of economic barriers, and reduction of armaments. President Wilson was quoted as saying, these are the principles of mankind, and they must prevail. They must prevail. And in that, you see how his, his goal, his vision was going beyond what we would say is perhaps a constrained vision of what can happen in society. You're driven by this almost utopian vision. They must prevail, he said. Prevail, they did not, as we know. This was shortly after the war that they called then the Great War, or even the war to end all wars. But now it's known to us with a number at the end, because unthinkably, less than 25 years later, there would have to be another war fought on an even bigger scale. 
But as President Wilson went through Europe carrying this agenda of the 14 points, he, he became a transcendent figure. Uh, he became the object of, of many people's adoration In praise, author H.G. Wells said this about him. He ceased to be a human statesman. He became a messiah. Because this project was really one of of almost consummation, of redemption, of this vision of the good life for the world, that such a war would not and could not happen again. No one would say that these kinds of dreams were ill-intentioned. Certainly they were... Uh, They were laced with all kinds of good intentions, but the optimism did not last long. The devastation of the Great War was too much. Countries like France, Russia, Germany, and Britain, the effects were almost unimaginable. Casualties in easily in the millions, and the number of wounded and severely wounded for the rest of their life even more than that. The number of civilian deaths in the millions, the number of young women who had been widowed because of the war, easily in the millions. So optimism could not be sustained. You see that after that initial rush of optimism, right after World War I ended, there was all of a sudden this plummeting into despair. Books like All Quiet on the Western Front capture that end of war despair, which uh, people ended up calling the end of illusions, right? This, this idea of the good life, of the principles of mankind prevailing, it was nothing but an illusion and how quickly that hope was gone, gone with the wind. How was Christians... Do we think about certain things like this? Not only that world at that time, but our world today. What is God doing in the world? And how does what God is doing in the world, how does that relate to those who believe the gospel and those who follow Jesus Christ? What should be our place on the spectrum between optimism and despair in this world under the curse? And how do we connect that to ultimately what God is doing and restoring us and giving us eternal life and bringing our mentality and our view towards heaven. Well, Jesus, uh, in his words today, utters something which is very famous in all of the Gospels. You can throw this out into conversation. Most people are going to know what you're talking about when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And in this saying, at least the part that we're going to consider today, mostly consider that first half, as I mentioned, Jesus is bringing into focus the goodness of the order of this world. God reigns sovereignly. He rules over all things. And he maintains order in this world through certain means. And one of the means uh, by which he maintains order is through the project of human government, of civil government. And this is something which God has given to us for our good. But as Christians, we need to understand it in its proper place and see the ways in which Jesus Christ says this authority is only temporary and it is limited. And in the fact that it is temporary and limited, what Jesus does is he lifts our eyes to something greater. And he brings, us to, he brings our attention to our need for a savior and the gospel. So he blesses that which is good. He affirms that which is good. But he says it's temporary and limited in order to bring our attention to our need for a savior and the gospel. That's what's going on in these words that we consider uh, this morning. So let us turn our attention to this passage in God's word. We see that Jesus, once again, is going to be put to the test uh, by a question. 
the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they, they were all very upset with Jesus telling of this parable of the vineyard. Remember last week's passage, this parable of uh, the vineyard, where Jesus basically says that the leadership of Israel has been insufficient. They have killed, uh, or they have shunned the prophets, and they're going to kill the son. So they watch Jesus carefully. And this carries a very negative connotation. You might say that they're lying in wait, that they're uh, ready to pounce almost. You can ask my daughters about that and how dad hides behind every corner of every wall in the house just waiting to pounce. There's this negative connotation that they're, they're waiting for the right moment to expose Jesus. They're waiting for the right moment to, to show everyone who he really is or at least what they think he really is. We see that in this passage, spies are being employed, sent by the leadership of Israel. And spies, that's something that you would almost expect in, in a military context or a, a pre-military context. And that highlights for us the growing tension. Leadership of Israel, growing more desperate, trying to, to find some way to stump Jesus. And we're going to see eventually that they abandon this course of action. It doesn't do any good to ask Jesus these questions because he always comes up with the perfect answer. He always comes up with something that they did not expect and that shows the foolishness of their leadership and the righteousness of Jesus. Psalm 37, uh, it show, this shows us how Jesus kind of fulfills that, that notion of the anointed one in the Psalms. Psalm 37, verse 32, the wicked spies upon the righteous and seeks to kill him. Psalm 38, verse 12, those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. They devise treachery all day long. This is what the enemies of Christ are doing, devising treachery all day long, trying to trap him in something that he says, trying to ask him a question that gives him no good answer, no way out. If you watch some of the judge confirmation hearings a month and a half ago or so, you saw a basically a week of these kinds of questions, at least coming from half of those who are questioning uh, this appointee to our highest court. I'll speak hyperbolically here, but it's almost like the questions they were asking were, were something like, would you rather that the people of America have toxic water or poisonous air? And these are the kinds of questions that people are trying to come up with for Jesus. Let's ask him a question that leaves him with no good answer. This time, They think they've got Jesus. Why do they think that? Well, they're going to ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. Frame it as a yes or no question. Is it right? Is it good? Is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? What are Jesus' options? Well, if Jesus says, uh, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then that, in a sense, would weaken his position as the leader of a movement. Some of his followers might say, "Why, if I believe that this Jesus is the Messiah, why is it that he seems to be falling under the authority of of Caesar, the emperor of Rome? My expectation is that the Messiah would come and wipe Rome out. He would be more powerful. David slew Goliath. The Messiah is going to come and slay Caesar. What if Jesus says no? Jesus says no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Then they're going to turn around, they're going to hand him over to the authority of the governor. Because if there's one thing that Rome could not stand, if there's one thing they would not put up with, it was a zealous revolutionary. 
It was an insurrectionist, someone who was going to stir up trouble in the public in the public square in a political sense. Rome was fine with syncretistic worship. Every time they would conquer a new land, what are your gods? We'll kind of throw them into our pantheon. How you worship is fine. Maybe adopt some of our things. Uh, you know, consider that this melting pot in a very bad way of religion. That's why Christians had so much trouble uh, right at the, the establishment of the New Covenant Church. Uh, so much trouble because of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and, and because of the way that they thought about things like the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods uh, before me. So they believe that this leaves Jesus with no good answer. There's, of course, irony and hypocrisy in this. The, the leadership of Israel believes that the Messiah is going to be one eventually who would come and who would overthrow Rome. But now to defeat Jesus, they're going to uh, leverage the idea of taxes against Jesus, paying taxes to Caesar, and then hand him over to the Roman governor, slaying the Messiah by the hands of Roman power. You see the irony and uh, the, uh, the hypocrisy. This is why in verse 23, we read that there is Jesus sees into their duplicity. Because they're doing all this while they're giving this feigned allegiance to Jesus. They're sort of trying to butter him up almost in verse 21. Oh Jesus, you only say and do what is good and what is right. Almost making, trying to make him think that they're on his side or that he is in safe company. That he can speak freely. Uh, this is of course feigned allegiance. But they speak truer words than what they no, something for us to think about, verse 21, as we consider this passage for ourselves. Uh, the spies say this in a sarcastic way. Ask yourself, do I believe everything that they say, but in a non-sarcastic way? Do I really believe that all of what Jesus said and all that he gives to us in his word is good, right, and in accordance with the truth? That's really foundational for, as the people of God, how we live in this world. All that Jesus said was good. All that he gives to us in his word is right and it is true. And it is the standard of truth. And it is to that word that I cling. So this question then is put to Jesus. How does he respond? He answers the question with another question. He did this in last week's passage, right? There, whoever is asking the questions is the one who is in control of the conversation is the one who is deciding where the conversation is going to go. Remember, Jesus lays down his life voluntarily. He's never going to be cornered against his will. He's never going to be pushed into doing something that, for which it is not time. Jesus goes and he does everything voluntarily of his own will. He lays down his life for us. So he answers this question with another question. He turns this question back on them in another interesting way. Leaders of, of counter-movements, leaders of, of revolutions, when their movement starts to, to gain some momentum, you start to see money to come in. And, and so they're hoping that they can leverage this idea of money against Jesus. In, in our world, you can see there are insurrectionist type of movements or terrorist type groups. And we see, we hear about the kind of, the kind of money that they have. And it's really quite amazing. And there's a lot of powerful people in the world that funnel money into these organizations, millions upon millions of dollars. Because when you start a counter-movement, it tends to attract those kinds of things. But Jesus is different, isn't he? Jesus was poor. Jesus was very, very poor. 
And any money that Jesus and the disciples had, Jesus himself didn't carry it on his person, did he? We know that uh, Judas Iscariot was the one who actually handled the money. We find out in the Gospel of John that Judas actually would help himself to some of the money that was in the money box whenever there was a little bit extra. And that's not to say that, that Jesus and his followers had had no money. There were people that certainly supported the work that he did. Interesting, there were actually women that, were, that came from money that were wealthy that really helped support the work of Jesus and the apostles and also the work of uh, the early church as we read in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. But Jesus asks someone else to produce a denarius. Why? Because it's probably safe to assume that he didn't even have one on his person. They're trying to use money, to, to this idea of money, to leverage it against Jesus, to, to really expose who he is. Jesus says, I don't even have one of these on me. Somebody, somebody else pull out a denarius. Sure enough, someone produces one quickly. Why? Because it matters more to them than it does to Jesus. The money matters more to them than it did to Christ. He walked through this earth without a place to lay his head. The Son of God co-eternal with the Father, himself God of God and light of light. And he walked through this world with next to nothing. Whose portrait and inscription are on the coin, Jesus asks. And if, as we consider this passage, both this week and then, Lord willing, next week, this is really the, the key point that we have to understand. Jesus says, whose portrait and whose inscription are on the coin. That word for portrait is the same Greek word for image, icon. It's a Greek word for image. And image is really the better way to think about this because in, in what Jesus says in the next clause, give to God what is God's, there we see it all come together. So it won't surprise you that ultimately where we're going to go is to the idea of the image of God and what it means to be made in the image of God and what that means for our lives. And we'll unpack that more uh, next week, but certainly a little bit this week as well. But they say it's Caesar's inscription, Tiberius Caesar. Caesar at the, the time of the life of Jesus. It's Caesar's image. Much like today, governing leaders, uh, their portrait, their likeness is stamped on coins. I, I think it's a, a blessing in our day that we don't have current leaders on our coins. That feels a little bit odd, a little bit like a tyranny or, or worship even. That's certainly what was going on in Rome. Uh, most of the Caesars proclaimed themselves to be divine. They certainly ruled uh, like tyrants. Fortunately for us, we sort of let the test of time determine who we put uh, on these coins, leaders who down through the ages remain worthy of, uh, of respect. One thing, though, it does create a little bit of strangeness for young children, as I found out this past week. Uh, Charlotte, little Charlotte was looking at a, a quarter and a picture of George Washington, and out of nowhere she just proclaims, baby, so she thinks George Washington's face looks like a baby's face. A little bit strange in that sense, but I think a good thing that we don't have our current leaders on the coins um, as they do in many places throughout the world. So then, Jesus says, ultimately, yes, it is lawful and it is okay uh, to pay taxes to Caesar. So, one of the, the upshots this morning is that April 15th is still a date that you need to worry about, right? Sad to say. Uh, still a date you need to worry about. Taxes, as a general matter, are legitimate insofar as those who are granted authority to govern in the civil sphere have the right to tax in order to ensure that they do their jobs of being ministers of justice. That's what the Bible calls them. They are ministers of the good, ministers of God's justice. Now, does that mean 
that there are no unjust taxes. No, that's not what that means. But that does, it does mean that the words of Jesus does mean that we are not to be flippant about disregarding those who have been placed in authority over us. See, this entire issue is couched with the idea, within the context of paying taxes. But Jesus is really affirming something broader than that, isn't he? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it wrong to pay taxes to Caesar? No, it is not wrong. Because within God's sovereign rule over all things, he is the king. He is the ruler. He is the creator. All things come from him. He rules and he reigns. He maintains order in his world by giving people positions of authority and power. This is not just in human government, right? This is in many, many, many spheres of life, many walks of life. Parents, uh, they are to rule over their children. And children are to give them respect. The Bible speaks of servants and and masters. And often the Bible discourages servants or slaves from rebelling against their masters because of how it will reflect upon their belief in a God who has created all things. Of course, that doesn't mean that that, uh, the Bible can be used as a weapon to endorse something like an institution like American slavery, which was a deeply unjust system. But rather, it's to show that God is a God of order. The church is to have officers that govern Uh, its affairs. Wives, submit to your husbands just as the church submits to Christ. So Jesus is giving legitimacy to the fact that God maintains order in this world through people who are appointed to rule and to govern. A very important passage in this vein is 1 Peter chapter 2. Where Peter says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. He goes on to say, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The teaching of Jesus, then, can be summarized in this way. The kingdom of God, the presence of the kingdom of God in this world, right? Which, as biblical Christians, we believe the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is in our midst. That kingdom's presence does not negate the legitimate nature of earthly kings or earthly kingdoms, right? It it, it doesn't turn all of those over. It doesn't abolish all of them. Christians have been discussing these things for centuries. Really one of the main leaders, one of the main theologians of the early church that almost everyone would point to in this way is Augustine. And Augustine's main idea, if you boil it down into the simplest terms, he wrote a lot and it deserves our attention and our contemplation. But ultimately, he spoke of this world as being composed of citizens of two cities. The city of God and the city of man. The city of God is all of those who are made alive in Jesus Christ, who follow the Lord, who obey the gospel, and they are oriented, their end-time orientation is to the blessedness of life with God, of love of God, and ultimately to heaven. Citizens of the city of man are those who are spiritually dead in their sin. Their end-time orientation is not to God, it's to the love of the self, the love of the flesh, and the pleasures of this world, right? You have everyone in this world uh, who is a citizen of one or the other. Radically different orientations. 
And within, even beyond that, you can think of all of the differentiations that we have uh, in this world today. Differences of language, tribe, socioeconomic status, ideology, uh, and on and on. All these differences arise. And so we ask, how does God maintain order? How does he maintain order? This is one of the things that, uh, that Augustine was working out. And the Reformed have done a great job in, in explicating how it is that God maintains order. It's by having his sovereign power, having his sovereign power worked out, maintaining order and justice through giving people positions of authority in this world. John Calvin, the, the Dutch, have obviously had a huge role in, in thinking about this. Wilhelmus Abrakel, Hermann Bovink, uh, Abraham Kuyper, all of them worthy of our attention. I'll read for us Article 36 of the Belgic Confession that says this. Here's our confession of faith. We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, our good God has ordained kings, princes, and civil officers. God wants the world to be governed by laws and policies so that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be, uh, may be conducted in good order among human beings. For that purpose, God has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and to protect the good. And so that's ultimately what we deduce from Scripture, that in terms of human government, God has granted to them the sword to enforce good and evil via force. The church has not been granted the sword, right? I'm not, I'm not hiding a sword anywhere back here, I promise. Right? We have the, the weapons that God has given us, his word, his truth, his gospel. Human government is granted the sword. And that's really rooted all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. If anyone sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So many people nuance this in different ways. And, and within the Reformed community, people nuance this in different ways. But here's what's important that we recognize. That God's sovereign rule is unmatched and it is overall. He is the king. He is sovereign over every area, every sphere of life. And he has appointed leaders over us to govern us in various ways. And it is good. And Jesus affirms it. Does that mean that we all the time must obey whatever any government says as Christians. Is that what that means? No. No, it's not what it means. Here is the basic litmus test. Here you go. If obeying a human law would result in disobeying God, you do not obey that human law. If, a human law, if obeying a human law would result in disobeying God, you do not obey that human law. Second half. If obeying God would cause you to disobey a human law, you obey God. If obeying God would cause you to disobey a human law, you obey God. Nothing and no one usurps God. Nothing and no one replaces uh, his lordship over our lives. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2. Honor everyone, fear God, honor the king. Here's an example of how Peter himself applied this very principle. Acts chapter 5. Uh, Peter has come into Jerusalem. This is after Pentecost. He's proclaiming the crucified and risen Christ. Salvation in his name. The leadership of Israel come, come up to him. They say, we strictly tar charged you not to teach in this name. Name of Christ. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather 
than men. Our prayer should be that for our lives, we almost always can obey God and men. But if it ever comes to it, we obey God rather than men. So, we live as citizens of the city of God in this world, oriented toward the love of God, oriented towards eternal life with him. There are those who are citizens of the city of man with a radically different orientation. How are we to live with them as our neighbors and friends and co-workers? We are called to love them. We are called to seek their good. It may be that God has appointed many of them to eternal life and they have not yet trusted in Jesus. We are called to be at peace with all people so far as it is possible. And yes, we are called to live in a distinct way as God's people, seeking holiness, seeking, uh, seeking righteousness and sanctification by means of the word of God. And there will be many things that distinguish us from the people of the world. And that needs to be an emphasis in our day, particularly as we see virtue and, and, and even virtue in the church fading away. But even with all of that, we are called to cooperate and work together for the good of this world. It takes wisdom. It takes wisdom. And asking the Lord for wisdom in order to navigate these things is a very appropriate thing. We prayed for that this morning. Give us wisdom to navigate some of the questions of this world. Jesus says many things. Radical obedience in the Sermon on the Mount. And those are legitimate commandments that we need to understand and think about. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And then Paul says in Romans 13, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The Apostle Paul himself, who certainly took all of these words, the Sermon on the Mount, turned the other cheek, took those very seriously. And yet we need wisdom in seeking how to apply them and how to understand how we live in this world. Does all of this mean that Christians are to respect civil authority and yet not be involved in it? Christians are to respect authority, but they're never to serve in a position of government. They're never to serve as a police officer or as a lawyer or as a soldier. Is that what that means? No. No, that is not what that means. Here's one of the Here's how one of our reform documents has put it. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate, that is, someone of of government or executing justice, when called thereunto, in the managing of which, as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace. Why? This is the Westminster Confession. They're saying, if it's not Christians who are going to work in this world to maintain piety, justice, and peace, then who is? It goes on to say, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully, now under the New Testament, wage war upon just and necessary occasions. And many Christians have waged war and donned the uniform of war upon just and necessary occasion. And many of them have been some of the best to have done so. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien both served in World War I. Neither of them liked war. In fact, you might say that both of them came close to something like despising war. And yet they both wrote some of the best works that we have in English. And they both make very clear that because of the human condition, because of the state of this world steeped in sin, there are times when fighting is necessary. 
Though it's interesting to read their works, to read their books, remembering or at least thinking about the fact that they were in the trenches in World War I, that, that, horrib- that horribly destructive war. And that was their experience that shaped them. So when Frodo and Sam are in Mordor, trapped on all sides, Frodo says, I don't like anything here at all. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air, water, all seem accursed. But so our path is laid. He knew the duty that he was to fulfill. He knew what he had been called to do. He knew the necessity of fulfilling uh, that role. Lewis and Tolkien fill their stories with unremarkable heroes who do their duty in the face of what no one enjoys. But they point us to something greater as Jesus does. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus isn't writing it off. He's not being ironic. He's saying, ah, just give to Caesar what is Caesar. It doesn't matter. He's saying it does matter. But he affirms, as we see in the rest of Scripture, that their authority, their right to govern, is temporary and it is limited. And that brings us to our need for a Savior. There needs to be something that goes beyond the cycles of the wars of this world. As we read in the end of Lord of the Rings, everything sad will come untrue, and there will be no more night. Everything sad will come untrue, and there will be no more night. See, earthly kings are legitimate and even good, but they cannot make the sad come untrue. Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. Jeremiah 17, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Ask yourself this, where is your help? Where is your hope? I wanted to read these words from Napoleon. He said, I know men, and I tell you Jesus Christ was not a man, by which I think he means a mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men will die for him. From the first day to the last, he is the same, majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them, giving no other reason than those tremendous words, I am God. The Bible contains a complete series of acts and of historical men to explain time and eternity, such as no other religion has to offer. If it is not the true religion, one is very excusable in being deceived, for everything in it is grand and worthy of God. The more I consider the gospel, the more I am assured that there is nothing there which is not beyond the march of events and above the human mind. What happiness that book procures for those who believe it. See, only Jesus, only Christ, only salvation in him, only being reconciled to God through him will make everything sad come untrue. Jesus affirms the legitimacy of these things, but he also reminds us to look beyond them. That denarius that was produced for Jesus had a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And on that coin, it said this, Tiberius Pontifex Maximus, which meant Tiberius 
our great high priest. Isn't it astounding that even in the midst of, 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 all of all of that imperfection and blasphemy on that coin, Jesus affirms the legitimacy of those who reign and who rule in those ways. Many of them are poor ministers of justice. Many of them will have to answer to God for what they have done, what they have said, and what they have enacted. It's one of the ways in which God maintains uh, his rule. And it's our prayer that for, for all of our lives on this earth, we can obey God and man. But if it ever comes to it, we obey God rather than man. For their authority is not ultimate. Every earthly kingdom, every earthly kingdom is uh, a mixture of good and bad. In this nation, we have been blessed uh, to enjoy so many blessings of God's grace. But no earthly kingdom is ultimate. They will all crumble at the return of the great king, the final king, the king of kings. See, Tiberius Caesar is not anyone's great high priest. Jesus Christ and him alone, he is our great high priest, for he alone can bring us into the presence of the Father, wash clean all of our sins, constitute us as righteous in God's sight, and give us life and happiness and blessedness forever. Put not your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. Know the goodness of all these things that God gives to us on this earth, but also know that none of these things can replace what our true and great high priest has done and will do for us, for he will make everything sad come untrue. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which Jesus remains steadfast and righteous, for the way in which he became for us in in time and space. He became that Savior which we so desperately need. We thank you also for the way that you maintain your order in this world. Uh, We know that the heart is desperately wicked, and it's, it's beyond repair but for your grace. And so we thank you that uh, you have ordained these means so that this world might be preserved in, in wonderful ways. and We may even see the blessings of your common grace come forth. Yet in all these things, Father, might we understand and know that which is temporary, that which is limited. And Father, in all these things, may you attune our hearts to, uh, to sing your praise and your grace and to look forward to the return of our King. Uh, who will come again, and he will not come as a poor wanderer on this, on this earth, but he will come as the righteous judge, the reigning king, and we will see him as he is. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess uh, that he is Lord. So we worship you, and we pray to you in his name, and we thank you for all that you do and continue to do in him. Amen.